Romans 15, beginning in verse 14, there Paul says to this church he's just written the most magnificent truths to, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation." But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I imagine that some of you have a bucket list. I have a bucket list. I've notched off. You may think I'm too young to have done that, but I've already notched off things on my bucket list. And it may surprise you to know that the Apostle Paul had a bucket list. And Paul had things he wanted to do before his ministry was over. Paul had a set number of things. We're going to see next week where Paul wants to travel, that he he wants to make it all the way to Spain, which is a huge accomplishment in the world in which Paul lived. And here, as Paul is writing at the end of this letter, Paul begins to give, in a sense, his bucket list. But his bucket list is quite a bit different than yours and mine, because the Apostle Paul's bucket list was one that was entirely shaped by the gospel. There was nothing selfish about it. There was nothing self-pleasing about it. Everything that Paul sets out here from verse 14 really to the end of the chapter is Paul telling us about his innermost desire, the call that God has placed on his life, the mission that he has in the church and throughout the world, and what motivates him in that mission. And as he sets it out and he tells this church of whom he's never met any of the people, but he knows many of those people as we see from chapter 16, the apostle Paul is telling us here, everything that he wants to do and everything that if God would permit him to do, he would carry out. And so Paul begins by addressing this church in verse 15, and he addresses them on the basis of his mission in the church. We're going to see two things this morning. First, we're going to see Paul's mission and motive for the spread of the gospel in the church, and then we're going to see Paul's mission and motive for the spread of the gospel in the world. Everything Paul says between verses 14 and 21 falls under one of those two headings. We'll notice that Paul has just come off of these two chapters where he has told this church that had a division between the strong Christians and the weak Christians, the Christians that knew they could eat whatever they wanted to and drink whatever they wanted to, and the weak Christians who had their consciences misinformed and ill-informed, who thought that somehow eating certain foods was wrong, drinking alcohol was wrong. Paul's addressed that issue. He's dealt with what appears to us to be the singular problem In this church, it's actually remarkable. If you read the New Testament, how many problems every church had. Every church is inundated with sin issues. Sin issues so great, at some point, Paul even says that pagans don't even do the things that Christians were doing in the churches. And yet, this is one of those churches with a lot fewer problems. They're not evident. 
There hasn't been any major problems brought to Paul's attention. There hasn't been any major scandalous sin like there were in the churches in Corinth. And it's kind of ironic that the churches Paul planted were laden with problems, and the church he didn't plant seems not to have been. I don't know what to do with that, but it is interesting. And Paul's just come off of what is probably his most severe approach to this church. It's probably the strongest Paul's been in this whole letter. Everything else Paul has said has been about the glories of Jesus. Everything else he has said has been about all the intricacies of the theological structure of Jesus as the second Adam who who undoes everything that Adam did and who does everything Adam failed to do and who as God and man came and who came to bring justification and sanctification. And Paul has set out a whole systematic theology. And then he addresses this issue about the weak and the strong, judging each other, criticizing each other. And now it's interesting because what Paul does is he sort of backs off of his strong tone. And notice that as he comes out of that section in verse 14, notice how he introduces this. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now, It seems strange. Paul's commending a church he's just criticized for two chapters. Now, whenever I do that, whenever I've brought something to somebody's attention and then I back off because I want people to like me, I've I've been told that I come across as pedantic. I think Paul comes across as pedantic. He he seems over the top. I'm satisfied about you. you. You're filled with goodness. You're filled with knowledge. You're able to admonish each other. He's commending this church. But I think what Paul's doing, I think that Paul is teaching us the very principle that in order to bring truth to someone's life, in order to speak truth into someone's life, and to speak even when it's painful to speak those truths, they need to be tempered with love. Paul's showing us, Paul's demonstrating in this first section that his mission in the church is to help everyone in the church come to a full knowledge of Jesus and be built up in him and matured in the faith, and that even when he has to address things, he does it with humility and gentleness. I want to read to you uh, something that Martin Luther said. I think this is very helpful. Luther said, without love which edifies, knowledge puffs up. Those cannot admonish one another who have not full love. For those, for they who only have knowledge and not love retain it for themselves or puffed up and regard it beneath their dignity to instruct others. But they who love freely share their knowledge and edify. They who love teach by word, yet refrain also from all works that give offense. Paul is trying to gain the best listening that he can from this church, and so he tells this church what he honestly sees about them. Now, I think part of Paul's mission to the church and something that has been lost in North America in every way is that every local church needs to be assessed. Every local church has a different temperature and atmosphere. It has different spiritual conditions. We see that in Revelation 2 and 3 where Jesus addresses those seven churches and no two churches look the same. And, And all of them have strengths and all of them have weaknesses. And Paul, like a master church planter, and as a chief apostle, is assessing the health and the life of this church. And he is seeing that in this church, there's many strengths. Notice he says, I'm satisfied about you, that you yourselves are full of goodness. One, One of the greatest things anybody could ever say to you is that you are a person full of goodness, that you are a person who is full of kindness and gentleness and uprightness and goodness. And then Paul says, notice that you yourselves are filled with knowledge. They are a church that knows the scriptures. Listen, 
if this church wasn't full of knowledge, they could not have handled all that Paul wrote in Romans. Paul saves the heaviest theology for this church. They are a church that's full of goodness. They are a church with people full of knowledge. And notice what he says, though, interestingly. Able, and literally, it should be able to admonish one another. Now, if you, if you were asked to tell someone what is a healthy church, what, would a, what are some characteristics of a healthy church? I imagine people would say, well, there's people that are loving in that church. And I'm sure that some would say, well, there's people that are, are kind and generous in that church. Maybe on the rare occasion that somebody reads their Bible, they might say they really know the scriptures and they know theology and they love the truth and they rejoice in a church that defends the truth. But I wonder, I wonder, if you were asked to assess what a healthy church is, you would say it's a church full of people who are willing to admonish one another. You know, the Proverbs say that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Um, that's, that's a principle most of us don't want to learn. We don't like confrontation. We like to flee. We don't like to confront others. And yet, notice Paul is modeling for us, the apostle is modeling for us the very thing he's telling them. He is coming to them full of goodness, full of knowledge, and he has just admonished them. And he's, in a sense, I think, teaching them that even the admonishment needs to come in love and humility and meekness. It needs to be tempered. You know, I think that's exactly what Paul's doing. Paul has just come with a strong word, and now he has backed off, and he said, listen, here's what's lovely and good about this fellowship. Here's, here are the things that are praiseworthy about this church. I want to say this this morning. There's not one thing in here about programs, music, or anything else most people in North America value. Not one thing. Paul doesn't say, you do a really good job with structural leadership. You do a really good job of mobilizing people and getting out into the community through mobilization and missional small groups. And you do a really good job of getting the best musicians in town. And you do a really good job with the backdrop. And, and I'm not bashing any of those things I'm saying. Paul doesn't mention any of that. Paul says you are filled with goodness. Paul says you are filled with knowledge. Paul says you are able to admonish one another. And what we need more than anything in our day is to be brought back to what a biblical church is. We need to be brought back to what should the characteristics of a healthy gospel-centered church be. And Paul gives us these three characteristics. Now, here's the fascinating thing about what Paul does. Paul has just told them, he's just commended them, and you might think Paul's ready to move on. He wants to get to Spain. It's like, you guys are good, full of goodness, full of knowledge. You admonish one another. I'm out. I'm going to Spain. But Paul doesn't do that. Notice what he says. Notice that Paul tells them, as soon as he's commended them, notice verse 15, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable. Now, what Paul is saying in summary is that there is more growth in grace that has to happen. There's always more. This might have been the strongest church in the New Testament. It probably was the healthiest church of all the New Testament churches in the first century. Rome was the healthiest church. And yet Paul says to them, after commending them, they need the gospel to continue working and that he had been appointed to be a missionary in the church. Now, when we think about the gospel and we think about 
Um, who is the gospel for? And this has been a debate that's raged for the last hundred years. Is the gospel only for those outside the church? Is evangelism only for those outside the church? Do believers need the gospel? And Paul's answer on every page in the New Testament, which is why it's so shocking to me that we would even have that debate, is that yes, believers need the gospel. Everywhere the gospel is needed. I love this quote. Sinclair Ferguson said, you only have to belong to a Christian church for a little time to discover that if there is anywhere that needs the gospel, it's the Christian church. I love that. Church is full of hypocrites. Exactly. You need the gospel. The church is full of people that that are self-righteous. It may be, and they need the gospel to humble their pride and to bring them low. The church is full of people that, that... are, are complacent, and they don't seem to care about people. Exactly. They need the gospel. They need to hear about the crucified Son of God. They need their hearts to be melted by the preaching of Jesus. They need to be matured in Christ and become obedient believers in Jesus. They need to hear about all the grace of Jesus. They need to hear about the grace of Jesus every day of their life. Every morning when I wake up, I preach the gospel to myself because I am the worst sinner that I know and I have a heart that grows cold, and I have a heart that gets complacent, and I have a heart that can cling too much to this world and gets drawn off into every different kind of thing, and I, as your pastor, need the gospel, and you, as the people of God, need the gospel. And if there's any place that needs the gospel, surprise, surprise, it is in the church of Jesus. And notice that Paul says that his goal is to continue ministering to them and he's speaking boldly because of the grace given to him by God, he may present them as acceptable sacrifices to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is not vested in this church because he planted it. It's actually really remarkable how much concern the apostle has for people he's never met. He's only, he's only heard reports never met them, and he has the deepest concern for them. You know, I, I have um, one of the sweetest experiences that I get as a pastor is when in our presbytery meetings we have a time of prayer, and one of the things that we always confess to the Lord during that time of prayer, um, all these ministers gathering together, is that the Lord would give us more love for the people he's entrusted to our care. It's one of the, that he would forgive us for not loving the people that he's entrusted to our care the way we should, because every minister knows he hasn't loved the congregants the way he should. And here's the Apostle Paul, and what a man the Apostle Paul is. Not only did he love the churches he planted deeply and poured himself out in service, his life was a sacrifice in service, you would almost think there's not one selfish bone in the Apostle Paul. Yet he's pouring himself out for a church he's never even met. He's using all the gifts and graces. What makes somebody do that? It's not money. Paul was beaten and shipwrecked and imprisoned. Paul was not in it for the money. Paul's salary was the lowest salary of any minister probably in church history. Paul took up tent making just so people knew his motives were not for the money. Paul was a man with pure motives, and Paul gives us his motives here for his mission in the church. Notice that he says, 
Notice verse 15. On some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. Paul realized that everything he was was by the grace of God. This was the man that stood and said, by the grace of God, I've labored more abundantly than everybody, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul had received so much grace. Let me remind you who Paul was. Paul was Saul of Tarsus, chief persecutor of the church, who murdered the first New Testament martyr, Stephen, whose Stephen's clothes were laid at the feet of Saul. Saul was zealous to persecute Christians. He was dragging Christians out of their homes. He had a letter to imprison every Christian that he could. Paul was the Jewish version of an ISIS member in every way. And so when Jesus dropped a new heart in Paul on the Damascus Road, and when Jesus brought Paul to his knees, and when, when he changed his heart and opened his eyes to see the glory of Christ and the grace of Christ, I think it's arguable that no one in the history of the world received so much grace as the Apostle Paul. And what motivated the Apostle Paul in selfless service to the church was that he knew what a great sinner he was and how much grace he had received. He was overwhelmed by the grace of God. You know, I think sometimes in conservative uh, churches, there's a thought that if, if, we're, if we're zealous enough and we're committed enough, we'll, we'll muscle our way through and we'll be bold for Jesus in the face of a, a world that hates us and, and churches that hate the truth and we'll just, we'll, we'll man up and we'll go out there, and that's not Paul's motivation. What made Paul bold was the grace of God. Isn't that marvelous? God's free, undeserved favor and, and goodness and mercy and the everlasting life that he poured out on Paul is what made Paul bold in the churches for the sake of the gospel. Notice what else Paul says. He says that that grace came to him, that he might be a minister of Christ Jesus. He knows that he is a bondservant of Jesus. He tells us that in the very first verse of this book, that he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and that he's been sent to the Gentiles. Now, this is remarkable to me. I have, I have many friends in ministry who, whenever they either lose their call or they decide to move on from a call, Without fail, almost every one of them decides, I really like this place. This would be a great place for my family to live. So I'm only going to look within this square mileage of this really great city. And it's got to have lots of hip music and culture. They would never say that, but that's why. Lots of, it's hip music, good culture, good food, good beer. That's where I want to minister. Who wouldn't want to minister there? I'd want to minister there. I'm being as honest as I can. The Apostle Paul wanted to minister in Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul's heart was to go back to his countrymen. His entire Christian life, he longed to go to Jerusalem. He actually tells us that he, he preached the gospel from Jerusalem all the way over to what is modern-day Yugoslavia or uh, 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 Albania, and notice he says that in verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And so Paul's desire was to go back to Israel. God said, no, Paul, you are going to go to the people that you would have despised the most when you were the zealous Pharisee that you were. That's remarkable. I mean, think of the contrast between Paul and Jonah. 
Jonah doesn't want to go to the Ninevites because Jonah's an Israelite who hates Gentiles, who thinks that he deserves salvation, who doesn't want God to have mercy on this barbaric people who have just utterly destroyed Israel time and time again. And God says, you're going to go to Nineveh, and Jonah goes the opposite direction. And like so many of us, if God wanted us to go somewhere and minister and we didn't want to go there, it would take a fish to swallow us and spit us out there. Jonah, God has to sovereignly orchestrate everything and say, no, you're going because Jonah didn't want the Ninevites to know the mercy and grace of God. Jonah's big rationale for not going to Nineveh was not that he was scared. His rationale was not that it wasn't going to be lucrative enough for him as an Old Testament prophet and he wasn't going to get enough attention. Jonah's big reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh, he said, I knew that you were a God who is gracious and merciful. He didn't want God to have grace and mercy On the Gentiles, Paul, in contrast, this is the remarkable thing. The grace of God was so heavy upon the Apostle Paul that instead of going where he longed to go, he went as zealously as he could everywhere around the known world, taking all the reproach and all the beatings and all the shame and all the persecution, pouring himself out and pouring himself out and pouring himself out and pouring himself out. And when I read a portion of scripture like this, I'm ashamed at how little I am willing to pour myself out for people. And we ought to be ashamed when we read this because Paul was motivated by nothing but the grace of God and that God had called him and commissioned him to offer up people as a sacrifice That's what pastoral ministry in the church is. Pastoral ministry is that the people of God would be so equipped and built up, they would be living sacrifices to God, a sweet-smelling aroma to God, that they would be be lights in this world. And Paul's motivation is pure. It's driven by the gospel. Notice, he says, he's a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel. You know, I, I... have been thinking about this a lot lately. What Christ did in substituting himself for us, in taking the wrath that we deserve, in being made sin for us though he knew no sin, in giving us his righteousness freely, imputing his righteousness to us, in rising from the dead and raising us up with him unto spiritual newness of life, works in us from the day that we heard and believed it. The moment that you believe, that gospel works in you, and it keeps working in you. But here's the remarkable thing. It not only keeps working in the church, it keeps working in the ministers in the church. So what was motivating Paul was the very thing that the church needed. So at every point, the gospel was working, and everywhere it was working, and it was bearing fruit. Let me say this this morning. If you lack, if you lack uh, goodness, if you lack um, knowledge, if you lack um, the desire or the willingness to admonish others, if you lack spiritual zeal, the lost, um, there's one reason. We're not believing the gospel. Our hearts are far from the gospel. We are not believing what Christ has done for us. We are not, being, we are not, we are not meditating on the grace of God in our lives. I've said this in the past, and I'm going to say it again this morning. Believing that Jesus has done everything in his death and resurrection is the hardest thing in the world to actually believe. It's the hardest thing in the world. 
Human pride doesn't want to believe that. We want to contribute something. We want our ministries to be driven by something. We want our view of the world and the church. You know, this is why we demand of a culture that hates us that they shouldn't hate us. We demand of a culture that hates us that they shouldn't hate us when we shouldn't demand anything as Christians. Now, secondly, I want to say this morning that Paul gives us the next step in his bucket list, and that is that he would be a faithful missionary to the nations. Notice what he says in verse 19. Christ had appointed him to be a minister of the Gentiles by the power of signs and wonders, so that he had preached the gospel all over the known world. In verse 20, and thus, notice this, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Here's what Paul's doing in brief. Everything Paul said in Romans 10, 14 through 17. How can they call on him of whom they've not heard? How can they hear without a preacher? How can they preach it unless they're sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who are sent to preach the, the glad tidings Paul is putting that into practice in his life. Paul really believes that unless people hear about Jesus Christ, they will not be saved. Paul believes that. He believes that completely. He has taught that. Jesus had taught that to him. And Paul's great desire is to make Christ known where he's never been named, to make him known where he's not been named. Now, let me say a few things this morning. While North America is not an unreached people. I think that we are several generations away from being what Europe is, which is unreached today. It's really sad that the birthplace of the Reformation, where the gospel is recovered and rediscovered and spread, is a barren wasteland of atheism. And America is rapidly moving that way. And there are many people who think that they, they know who Christ is. You know, Travis will often go out and ask people, he'll, he'll say, um, Hey, so tell me, do you know, what's the gospel? These are church people. What's the gospel? People say, uh, the, the Bible. No, that's not the gospel. Um, we've had people tell us the gospel is, you know, God, try really hard to do good and obey the, the Bible, and, and God will forgive you when you mess up. Not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Um, the gospel is that God became man in Jesus, so that he could stand in our place and take all of our unrighteousness, all of it, so that we don't get judged on judgment day for all of that sin, and he lived the perfect life, and he kept God's law perfectly. He never sinned. Let me emphasize this morning. Jesus never sinned. Not one thought, not one word, not one action that was sinful. 30-some years of absolute moral perfection. 30-some years of perfectly worshiping his Father in heaven. 30 years of saying to his Father, I always do the will of my Father. I always do what I heard from my Father. I have been sent from my Father that I might fulfill the work that he's given me to do. Jesus took all the sins of all his people on himself and he paid in full the debt that we owed. He paid in full the debt that we owed. And if we are trusting in him alone, we will go to be with Christ forever in glory, not because of anything that we've done. Titus 3, we read it this morning. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. The gospel is what Christ has done, 
The gospel is who Jesus is. The gospel is not anything that we do. It's not even trying to follow Jesus. I was listening to a preacher the other day. It was very painful. Sometimes do that. It's sort of spiritual masochism. I listen to preachers that I know are not going to be good for me just to hear. Maybe they've changed. Maybe those thousands of people that sit under their ministry will now start to hear the gospel. And the man began to explain. A woman had asked him, what, what, what's up with the blood of Jesus? And he said, so I, I told her. He didn't tell any of the thousands of people in front of him, but he told her, he said. And then she said, oh, that's great. And he said, now you, you just got to try to follow Christ, not the gospel. It is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus interposed his precious blood to cover all of your transgressions. That's the gospel. I want to tell you again this morning what John Gerstner said. The only thing that we contribute to salvation is the sin that made it necessary for us to be saved. It's the only thing we contribute to our salvation. That's it. You know, that hearing, hearing about the Lord Jesus in the fullness of his redeeming grace ought to be like water just washing over our souls. You know, my um, Stephen Birch and I were talking yesterday, and um, he said, you know, I think, that, I think that King David got grace better than anybody. He said, because when Saul died, and remember, Saul was the guy that was pursuing him, trying to kill him his whole life, he penned a song about the loveliness of Saul. It's not schizophrenia. <laughs> David got grace. David wrote a song about what great things there had been about Saul after the guy trying to kill him. We, we see someone fall into sin in any way. We see someone, we want destruction on people because we don't get grace, because we don't get what we deserve. We don't get what Christ has done. David couldn't even see as clearly as we can see. He didn't see the cross as clearly as we see it. He foresaw the Christ to come, but he understood God's atoning sacrifices in the Old Testament were pointing forward to God covering his own transgressions. And so Paul, notice, he wants to come. He wants to fulfill the ministry of the gospel of Christ. He wants to preach the gospel, not where Christ had already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And I want us to close with this. Here's, here's the big motivation for Paul. Paul was not trying to grow a megachurch. As I meditated on this this week, I thought, how, how skewed we are to think that a church is about how many people I can pack in for me. How warped that is. And the men doing that, and they, they're not going to tell you that's what they're doing. They're going to reveal that so many of them, their motives are the glory of themselves. But notice what Paul says. Paul reaches back again to the Old Testament. Notice. He reaches back to Isaiah 52, 15. Notice verse 21. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul's motivation was that God was on mission to redeem people out of the nations to himself. The God who limited himself to Israel in the Old Covenant said a people who have never seen will see, a people who have never heard will understand. I will give understanding to people. I will make them see that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is now the God of the Gentiles in Jesus Christ. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, and he would open the eyes of people like us 
people like us who have no claim on it, no stake to it, no right to it, that the God of heaven and earth, who doesn't have to save anybody, has promised and embedded in the scriptures that he would one day send the gospel to a people who would never have heard otherwise. And that's what fueled Paul. Paul understood that in some way his ministry was a fulfillment of Isaiah 52. That in some way Isaiah 52, 15 was speaking about what God wanted to do through him. Now, I want to make two or three applications and then we'll close. Not all of us are called to be itinerant church planners. None of us are called to be apostles. Let's just be clear about that. Let's put that out on the table. If you think you're called to be a big A apostle, I'll be in the back afterwards and we can talk. Um, None of us are called to be apostles. There were 13 apostles. That's it. Done. They wrote scripture. They laid the foundation of the New Testament church. Not all of us are called to be itinerant. Uh, church planners, not all of us are called to be ministers, not all of us are called to preach the gospel, we're not. That's a unique calling that God has for those that he appoints to be ministers. Every one of us should have the same heart that the Apostle Paul had for the well-being of the church and the churches. Every one of us should be giving our prayers and our energy and our time and our labors our financial support to seeing healthy, gospel-centered, God-honoring, Christ-exalting, scripture-saturated, mercy-filled churches filling the earth. Because you know what? There are very few churches throughout the world that are faithful churches. The Apostle Paul knew that there were many people who had never heard about the true Lord Jesus. I challenge you this week. You're probably not going to do it, but I'll challenge you anyway. I want you to ask your unbelieving friends what the gospel is this week. Go up one unbelieving friend. Ask him what the gospel is. I almost guarantee you they can't tell you. And that means Christ has not been named in many places in Richmond Hill, Georgia, and in Savannah, Georgia, and throughout Southeast Georgia, and throughout the state of Georgia, and throughout the United States. There are many places where Christ has not been named, where the true biblical Jesus is not known and trusted and worshiped and believed. So I want to challenge you to do that. Two, I want to ask you, you've heard the gospel. Have you you seen that you're hopeless and helpless without Jesus? I mean, that that was the response. Everywhere Paul went, he preached. Either people hated what he said or they said, what do we need to do to be saved? And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus. Trust him. You know, it's one of the sweetest things that the response to the gospel is go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Um, If you feel like you are lacking, you've come to Christ, and you feel like your life is spiritually um, stagnant, or if you're backslidden, or if you're faint-hearted, if you're weary in the way, go to Christ. Go home, get on your knees, go to Christ. I want to read something as we close. Um, one of the reasons why Paul was committed not just to spreading the gospel to those who had never heard and, and to unreached regions of the world, one of the reasons he was committed to, to seeing the gospel in the church um, is because, in the words of Eric Alexander, there's always this grave danger that we become unteachable. There's always this grave danger that we become unteachable. He said, I tell you what happens. 
It's the very thing that you find scripture speaking about again and again. The ears that refuse to hear become incurably deaf. It doesn't matter that you're full of wisdom, full of knowledge, competent to instruct others. You desperately need to be taught. I want you all to hear that this morning at New Covenant. It doesn't matter. You've been taught well. It doesn't matter. You, you and I desperately need to be taught. He goes on to say, until your dying day, that will be true. And you need to go and cry to God, Lord, give me a teachable spirit and give me it until I go to glory. That would be the best thing all of us could do today. Go home and say, Lord, give me a teachable spirit. Make me understand more of the gospel. Make me feel my need for your son. Draw me to your son. Grant me deeper communion with Christ. And do it over and over and over and over and over and over again until I'm with you in glory. That's why we meet every Lord's Day. That's why even though we know these things, there's not a redundancy about them. We need to hear them over and over again. Lord, give me a teachable spirit. Make us to know the power and the wisdom of the gospel afresh. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are committed to our sanctification by your Spirit. We thank you that you're committed to teaching us every week. We thank you for every word that you have breathed out. We thank you for this portion of Scripture and for showing us the missionary heart of the Apostle Paul to the church and in the world. Our God, we pray that you would stir us up, that we would have that same desire to see your glory spread throughout the world for the name of Christ to be named, for him to be honored and exalted, for men and women to be redeemed. We pray that you would give us the grace that you gave the Apostle Paul, that we would be able to say that it is by the grace of God we labor more abundantly than all. We pray, our God, that you would have mercy on us and make each of us here feel our need for your son this morning. We pray these things in his name. Amen.